Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, traders, wherever you are at on planet Earth. We are coming at you with the 74th episode of the Performante podcast. We have an interesting topic today. Both me and Keith agree that yesterday was one of the most monumental days in crypto, especially on the Capitol Hill, where we had the most legendary CEOs in the game take on the boomer senators, who clearly some demonstrated a very clear understanding of the cryptocurrency niche, and some demonstrated a very clear lack of understanding. And so that is one of the main topics we will be talking about today, how that meeting went, the prospective outlook, what regulation is coming. And we also wanted to touch base on how both Visa and MasterCard are increasing their exposure to cryptocurrencies while integration with WhatsApp is coming. Of course, Michael Saylor has been adding to his stack and well as some new CBDC news. And then to finish off the episode, we have speculation coming from the Ethereum ecosystem about when ETH 2.0 will finally be ready for complete launch. So wild up or wild episode ahead, wide range of topics. So buckle up, listen up, and I'll pass it on over to Keith to dive into the first story today. Awesome. So thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in. We're going to jump right into it. Hopefully everyone checked out the hearing that went down. We did post a live link, and if you haven't checked it out, you can see it on YouTube. It was uh, recorded live. But there was six executives in cri different cryptocurrency companies like Coinbase, uh, Bitfury, and many others. Uh, Stellar Lumens was in there as well, FTX. And they had a hearing before the House Financial Services Committee on Wednesday, and the main discussion was regulation. They talked a lot about stable coins, and it was interesting to see how the boomers kind of positioned their questions, and it gave a little bit of insight as to either how much they know or the lack of knowledge that they had. Some of the answers were absolutely astonishing, and the I think the three main people that at least I found to be providing the most thought-out uh, answers would be first number one the FTX CEO Mr. Sam Bankman Friedman SBF uh, hopefully everyone uh, we talk about him a lot within our discord absolute behemoth of an individual in terms of the knowledge he brings to the table also a, another individual I, I, I hear a lot of people talk about him on Twitter now um, he was an absolute I would say um key individual within that discussion, and he was Brian Brooks. Brian Brooks. He's the CEO of Bitcoin mining company Bitfury, and also Alyssa Haas was also very interesting, and she is the chief financial officer of Coinbase. A lot of interesting talks in that. Um, I personally think that it went overall extremely well. All the questions that were asked were provided with very clear answers, and there's a little bit of uh, not shit talk of the U.S. government, but there was a little bit of poking fun. Like, for example, there was a lot of questions uh, pointed to Sam Bankman fried talking about the KYC, talking about Know Your Customer, basically trying to go over the process of how a user would be able to use FTX and how they're kind of trying to see if there's any sort of malicious activity, if there are bad actors that are able to use FTX and trying to understand if there's sort of any money laundering opportunities that FTX has. And Mr. Uh, Sam Bankman fried actually came back and said, well, does the U.S. government and the U.S. dollar have any um, know your customer KYC situations that they need to go through in order to use it? And obviously the answer is no. So um, I think that's a pretty good way to position like a question back to uh, the hearing committee members, because at the end of the day, the U.S. dollar is the most commonly used currency for terrorism, for illegal activities, in my personal opinion. It's the world uh, reserve currency. So um, 
overall, I think it was a very, very positive talk. What are your thoughts on it there, Nathan? Yeah, it was very productive. Honestly, I was a little bit apprehensive about this whole legislative meeting and what the kind of outcomes would be here, but it was nothing but good ideas floating. And uh, it's not like it pumped the price or dumped the price. We are in a bit of a crap market, but it was interesting to learn how these politicians are actually viewing cryptocurrency and specifically stablecoins. Stablecoins were a big topic of discussion if they should be governed by the same industries that cover banks or if they are should be a CFTC item or an SCC item, despite crypto not being a security. It was just nice because... A lot of these questions that we all have as individual taxpayers lack regulatory clarity and the same politicians don't really have the have the exact same understanding as us, meaning the exact same misunderstanding where there's not clear regulation, there's not clear legal definitions of what these assets are and how they can be taxed. Uh, there was kind of like a little bit of a bipartisan moment where it seemed like the Democrats were very like, we need to regulate this. We need to set up some new appointing bodies to oversee the industry. We need to like get ahead of this. And uh, conversely, the Republicans were kind of like, well, it's already regulated. What we need to do is set up clear guidelines so the people, the innovators, the CEOs, the companies don't leave the U.S. for other countries. Because we've already seen that efflux kind of on the institutional and corporate level where companies are leaving. And so I think that was one key topic of discussion is like, hey, if we don't get ahead of this crypto regulation and set some clear guidelines, we are going to lose some multinational talent to other countries. And I think that's a really important point. I think that was expressed by Mr. Brooks. Mr. Brooks, absolute legend, smashed every question out of the park. He is the Bitfury CEO, but he also used to be the head of Binance US. So I think he was a great resource for this uh, for the politicians to invite. Because he also was this, uh, he's worked with the SEC before and worked in banking legislation. So when it came to his experience and kind of his personal perspective on how the regulation should come into effect, I think he provided a lot of value and insight. And he also snuck in, of course, a few cheeky comments. And so at the end of the day, it's not quite what I expected. I expected just boomers being confused. Like who who let the who let the senile people out of the daycare? Maybe they'd be wearing nightgowns and shit. But they uh, they did keep up, and uh, ultimately, I think it's a very positive thing for crypto. I think it's a step in the right direction, and uh, in our opinion, it's probably one of the most important days in cryptocurrencies history. Just to be frank, you know, regulation isn't a bad thing, and as we grow and mature as a, a multi-trillion-dollar market regulation is required it's just a matter of what that regulation actually looks like mm -hmm. definitely well said and i think it's a good thing that they brought up how the internet was adopted fairly aggressively by the u.s more so than any other country and look where that led you see the largest companies in the world all in the u.s and that's not by coincidence the u.s was able to really grab hold of the power of the internet technology being able to have this distributed network and provide data to all these different uh, nodes really quickly and that technology was able to flourish into what we know today as the tech sector in the u.s so these uh, ceos did bring that up saying we've kind of had this story before and we absolutely dominated the internet age and the ability to create massive leverage with the use of the internet and i think bringing that up is a really good comparison as to what we're currently seeing right now blockchain the ability 
to trustlessly transact on a global scale is obviously extremely leverageable and they're kind of making that comparison with what happened back in the dot-com boom and how that was able to position the U.S. to be the powerhouse they are right now or at least a part of it. So they're wanting that same sort of regulatory clarity so they're able to build projects and build companies around those regulatory provisions that are hopefully going to be implemented here in the near future. So definitely uh, will be interesting. They also will have one for the bearish side. Uh, so they're going to be bringing in CEOs from like large banks and people that are against crypto. And that'd be an interesting uh, conversation that will play out. But uh, as of right now, things are looking pretty solid. Next thing we're going to be talking a little bit about is uh, basically payment processors. We're going to be first talking about Visa because they opened a Bitcoin consulting service for banks, which is pretty interesting. The payment giant reportedly said that it's hope hoping to provide a new service which can help further mainstream adoption for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And it's not just Visa that we were that we're currently seeing pushing for adoption in crypto. Uh, we talked last month about MasterCard. They hosted a investment community meeting in November, around mid-November, November 12th of 2021, and they were kind of pushing for the exact same thing. They discussed specific things to help the crypto community push forward and allow everyday individuals, retail, not really institutional, feel a more safe about using crypto, how to cash out, how to spend it, how to gain rewards, as well as like security, identity services, network access, all that stuff. So they're really trying to push for the adoption because to be honest, it kind of seems like they are uh, to say it lately, kind of shit and bricks because they are very worried because crypto is just a much faster payment processing network. Like if you're using your credit card, yes, that moment in time, you are able to transact and buy goods, but the actual process of completing that transaction still is not instant and crypto is much faster. So what large payment processors like Visa and MasterCard, um, and I'm sure like PayPal are all doing is looking at crypto and thinking they have to embrace it because they don't want to be the blockbuster where crypto is basically kind of like the new Netflix where they're slowly going to go out of business and people are going to be talking about credit cards like it was ancient history. It was so long back ago and obviously no company wants that. So large payment processes are positioning themselves as another basically on-ramp for the crypto ecosystem it looks like. Yeah, I feel like they're kind of, they could be a victim to like the blockbuster effect where it's like, hey, we recognize the threat to our industry. In this instance, blockbuster was like, damn, that new company, Netflix, pretty cool. And then within five years, they're completely out of business, right? Bitcoin is all about decentralization. And that's what the crypto network really excels at in a whole. And when we're looking forward how blockchain technology can be adopted, ultimately payment processing and having a middleman like Visa and MasterCard they're the primary targets. They're the people with the hit list, so to speak, because Bitcoin does not need an intermediary to function like Visa. Simply all creditors and payment processors like Visa and MasterCard do is provide a service to connect A to B, but in a world of decentralization, A and B can communicate directly. And so it's not really clear what kind of products or advisory service visa is actually operating with this Bitcoin consulting service, but they say there's a deep consumer demand for Bitcoin in the larger cryptocurrency sector. Super interesting to hear that speculation coming out of a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, and same with uh, MasterCard. It looks like there was new news coming out of the MasterCard ecosystem. So we can see these payment processing companies are kind of getting a little bit suspect of the cryptocurrency niche. 
Uh, and ultimately, I think MasterCard is kind of more trying to play into the role of the CBDC uh, and kind of offer crypto-enabled services for spending, cashing out, and offering cryptocurrency rewards. And I think in that same note, they also want to tap into the crypto security niche, the identity services, and kind of facilitate the network. And so I guess that's kind of two sides. One side that I guess Visa is taking is operating on like the business-centric side of things, offering enterprise solutions for companies to learn more about learn more and leverage the technology while mastercard seems to be be like hey you handle that <laughs> we'll handle more of like the cbdc infrastructure and facilitating the consumer centric products where it's easier for users to leverage the technology on a day-to-day -day basis that being said i have both a visa and a mastercard and neither of them will let me buy cryptocurrency with the card Shout out Canadian legislation and Canadian <laughs> financial dynamics, but they can be as pro or they can say they're as pro crypto as they are, but I'll believe it when I can buy crypto with my credit card. Yeah, honestly, so true. Um, also, we didn't really talk about CRO, which is an absolute behemoth within itself. Um, so they got CRO kind of nipping at their heels. They have their whole ecosystem that is flourishing, especially now with CRO pumping. Um, almost to a dollar, not quite there, but we are seeing substantial growth and their acquisitions of like large stadiums and the mass marketing that's going on. I think that Visa and MasterCard are seeing a little bit of, uh, I would say, uh, not fear, but they're seeing that competition creep up, especially because they're already integrated in crypto. Everyone knows them as the credit card provider in the realm of crypto where you're able to spend crypto. They have phenomenal rewards that I don't think Visa or MasterCard are able to really compete with. Uh, I haven't really checked uh, for there, but CRO has a phenomenal plan in terms of the tiers that you're able to get into depending on how much you stake. And with CRO, you're able to generate income just through staking, whereas MasterCard and Visa, you can't. So uh, it'd be interesting to see how MasterCard, Visa, and other payment processors are able to kind of be flexible and navigate through this turbulent time for them. Kind of sticking on the, uh, I would say, companies accepting and adopting crypto, we see WhatsApp deploy crypto payments uh, for chats in the US. And instead of using like the normal crypto payments that a lot of other companies use, like Bitcoin, Ethereum, they're mainly using the stablecoin PAX dollar or USDP. And that's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. Um, I don't know if you can actually send anything else yet. I don't believe you can, but this is a new rollout that they're offering for a limited number of people in the US. So not everyone's going to be able to use the payment process or payment transactions for PAX dollar in WhatsApp. But if they are enabling it for some people in the US, it's only a matter of time until everyone's able to use it. And this is just another means of transacting through the blockchain basically instantaneously in a trustless network and um it's it's definitely really great to see yeah 100 percent. and i think launching the pilot in the u.s is a bold move because u.s obviously i guess you could say they either have the highest regulatory requirements or the lowest regulatory requirements kind of depending on which way you look at it but given that whatsapp does have to be a pretty highly compliant platform given that Zuckerberg has been in the hot seat recently on Capitol Hill. Uh, it's interesting to see that partnership. Uh, in addition, it kind of makes me wonder where the Facebook ecosystem, where their Libra, 
it was originally called Libra and then rebranded to DM, I believe, after it got mm-hmm. absolutely shit on on the internet, <laughs> which makes me wonder when DM will be launching and if this is kind of like an officially endorsed Facebook product or if they're just test piloting with this Novi to see if it's possible before they integrate their own cryptocurrency into their metaverse sector. Super interesting seeing these big conglomerates because the headline says WhatsApp deploys crypto payments, but realistically, because Facebook owns WhatsApp, or sorry, Meta owns WhatsApp, then in reality, this is kind of a much bigger headline than when you actually read just the simple words. And so to move on to the next story, MicroStrategy, the man, the myth, the legend of Michael Saylor doubles down. He, I guess, not even doubles down, like quintuples down or <laughs> however many times he's bought Bitcoin. He bought 1,434 coins uh, between December 29th and December 8th for $82 million in cash with an average price of $57,477, which is actually a bit of a high average considering how low bitcoin actually went during that time period but again that uh that just adds to their stack he is the hardcore hodler uh, and really he's just been accumulating with his company microstrategy whether it be selling bonds using the excess cash on hand he is really the epitome of a crypto dj yeah honestly <laughs> using his own company to leverage uh, the ability to purchase more but um seeming like it has been working his publicly traded company MicroStrategy is, although right now not doing super well, um, if you take a look like two years back, three years back, even a year back, it has exploded higher in market cap and value. So overall, it has been working. And at this point, it's kind of like a crypto or a Bitcoin holding company, so to speak, where if you're investing in MicroStrategy, yeah, you are investing in the software that he is able to provide. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of people are looking at MicroStrategy and saying, I know Michael Saylor is not going to sell his Bitcoin, so it is basically another way of gaining exposure in Bitcoin through an equity instead of actually just owning Bitcoin outright. So uh, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to see how correlated MicroStrategy is with Bitcoin. Um, as of right now, it's not super correlated, but um, I think over time when he's just continuing to accumulate and he is basically stating to the world that he will never sell. Uh, it's a pretty good indication that it is a pretty solid long-term play. If you don't want to basically mess around with wallets or addresses or anything, that might be a good option there for you. And he is continuously going to buy more. Moving on to the next thing here, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank, the ECCB. They have now rolled out two more nations for their central bank digital currency, and this Central bank digital currency is called Dcash, and the it's basically the digital version of the EC dollar, and it's been rolled out to seven out of the eight members of the ECCU countries, uh, which is pretty awesome. And the ECCB governor, uh, Timothy Antoni, said the payment system should work for all, explicit for oh, except for illicit actors, and Dcash must work for small states and small businesses. And the main reason why they wanted to implement this so quickly is because it's a bunch of smaller nations and islands, and it's very difficult for them to transact currency prior to the ability to use crypto and blockchain. So with this, they're able to lower the cost of transactions, making it easier for that economy to basically transact. More money is staying within the economy instead of getting basically exported into countries or companies that are able to provide that service of transferring funds. So that's really good to see. 
and um, basically why they're benefiting from it. A little bit of information here. So besides the geographic issues, geographical issues on cross-border payments within that area, uh, they actually also have seen the most prone to natural disasters in the world. Uh, so, sorry, the second region with the most prone to natural disasters in the world. Japan might be first, I don't exactly know, but they have a lot of earthquakes there. So this way, it provides the ability for the central banks to provide funds to everyday individuals prior to central bank digital currencies. You can't really get money to the hands of the direct people of that nation. They got to go through the banks and then it has to trickle down to the consumer, to the retail individual who needs the money. And that's a lot of fees and a lot of processing that does not need to happen. So this way people are, or central banks are able to directly either give people money into their central bank digital currency wallets or somewhere or another where they're able to reduce a lot of the cost and a lot of the friction in order to get those funds to the right people. So really great to see. I think this is going to be a template for a lot of other countries to go by where they're slowly going to implement central bank digital currencies because of the big benefits. And if we are going to be seeing governments continuously add stimulus checks uh, for basically stimulating the economy because they don't want to have a risk-on environment. This is going to be the best way to go for all central banks because it's just a much faster, more efficient, more cheap way to provide funds to the nation's citizens. Yeah, I feel like it definitely empowers individuals when we're kind of looking at like that national disaster side where it's like, yo, if you need to buy food and you have to go to the bank to get cash... I'm not going to go to the bank when there's a hurricane outside. So maybe a mobile app is a better solution for these uh, Caribbean tropical countries. And it's interesting seeing this because this kind of decorrelates them from the U.S. dollar as well. It gives them a little bit of their sovereign independence back uh, and really, I guess, empowers individuals to transact how they please, when they please. Uh, and just another leverage of the digital currency movement that we're seeing uh, and ultimately, I feel like it is a step in the right direction. And frankly, I have wanted to go to the Caribbean recently. And if that's an excuse to download a CBDC app and mess around <laughs> with it, I'll take it. That's an opportunity. And so for the last story of the day to round up this episode, we're talking about Vitalik Buterin. Uh, for those who don't know, he is the creator and founder of the Ethereum Foundation. Uh, and so we've been talking shit about Ethereum for, I would say, just about a year now. And uh, the main point of contention that we have is, like, we're launching Ethereum 2.0. The first uh, update, actually, I believe it came out December 2020, was Beacon Chain. And Beacon Chain was the first of three updates for Ethereum 2.0 launching. And the idea with Beacon Chain is that users could set aside 32 Ethereum to contribute to a node. And at this point, it would be a hybrid model where Ethereum can be mined with GPUs. And it was also staked. So right now it kind of exists in parallel where we have both proof of work components and proof of stake components. And that happened in December 2020. And then suddenly we've had two updates since then that actually have been designed to reduce gas fees and change how gas or change how miners are compensated. So it's kind of contrasting directions. On one side, we had Beacon Chain and we know there needs to be two more updates for Ethereum 2.0 to be fully launched. But before those updates even came to market, he doubled back and started fixing some proof of work things. So kind of contrasting directions with Ethereum. And in the meantime, gas fees are absolutely insane. They don't make sense. Super inconsistent with market volatility. And it's kind of 
forced a lot of the smaller investors out of specific markets, whether it be DeFi, trading on decentralized exchanges, buying, selling NFTs, whatever it may be, it's kind of hurt the end consumer's experience unless they are an Ethereum whale and they're able to pay $100, $200, $300 for gas fees for a single transaction. I think that's really the fundamental problem that we've had with Ethereum recently. And that is part of the reason why we are so bullish on alternatives like BNB, Solana, AVAX, Terra Luna, because these have a much better value proposition in the context of the current market and Ethereum's crazy gas fees. And so this article just kind of detailed that, hey, there's two there's two big updates left to happen for Ethereum. Uh, so right now we are on Beacon Chain and the next two is, the next one is called The Merge and the final is Shard Chain. So those are the next two updates. And uh, they have, it has been said that they are scheduled to take place at both in 2022. So as we are only 22 days away from 2022, that's an exciting outlook to see if the Ethereum Foundation can meet their self-inflicted deadline or if it'll end up happening later than expected. Personally, I think it will happen later than expected because Ethereum 2.0 was meant to be fully launched in 2021, but here we are only 33% of the way. I believe in uh, I believe in Ethereum. I believe in Vitalik. I still own quite a bit. But at the end of the day, uh, their current product is, I would say, financially exclusive to some individuals, and that's kind of antichrist to the overall cryptocurrency movement. Yeah, well said. It's definitely the most adopted in terms of the altcoins, although at this point the altcoin market is getting so big that it, we should really um, view it as not just alternative to Bitcoin, but it's definitely going to be interesting to see how it plays out once ETH 2.0 actually rolls out. There are much cheaper transaction fees. Are people going to go back to Ethereum because it has a larger network or are people going to stay within their preferred network, whether it's Terra Luna, whether it's Solana, whether it's Binance, Smart Chain, whatever it may be. So it will be interesting. But as of right now, while Ethereum 2.0 is launching, um, although Ethereum is getting bigger, I think a lot of people getting into the space are very quickly realizing that you can have basically no cost of fees compared to what people are paying on Ethereum. Like uh, there is a particular website on Ethereum that you could see how much you actually spent in total for your gas fees. Um, I don't exactly know the website, but um, stuff like that goes viral and it kind of puts a little bit more pressure on Ethereum to move as quick as they can. So definitely keep everyone updated on that. But that's going to be wrapping up the end of our podcast. Today is December 9th, 2021. This was the 74th podcast here at the Performante Podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. And until next time, 